Well, good morning, IBC. It's good to see you all here. I'm really excited to be able to be here and share with you. Um, do have some special guests in the audience. We have the Makahi clan is back visiting, so very cool that they're here. Um, some other people here today that um, I need your prayers this morning. <clears throat> because we're going to jump into some really challenging, deep things. And, and I know there's people who have just a very surface knowledge of what Christianity is or isn't. So if you could just pray along those lines. <clears throat> um, I will be using Second um, Peter chapter 1 for one of the core texts and then Romans 6 for the other if you want to turn to those or get those ready but passages will be on the screens um, I want to start by posing a question how is the church doing in the culture war today my hope is that today we'll have some practical ways to address this um, one of the things that happens at Hume Lake every Thursday evening is the youth pastor dinner. The youth pastors are bussed up to a house to join many of the other staff for dinner. And there we have a chance to share where we think the needs of the church, as it's expressed in the lives of the youth, are at. Pastors from all over California share what they see as the greatest needs in the lives of youth in the church and how they can best be reached and supported by the ministry of Hume Lake. And I've shared this before, one of the things that, that I'm always impressed with Hume Lake's ministry is that they, they respond to what the church's needs are and they build their program around that. Well, this year it was pretty much unanimous that the greatest need was identity. Not the identity of what does it mean to be a Christian, or what does it look like to live as a Christian in this world or at my school? No, the struggle of youth today is, am I male or female? Or can I decide each day how I identify? Or how must other people acknowledge me with pronouns? This goes way beyond the confusion of who I am in Christ. This is a confusion of who I am as a person, attacking even their personhood. In May of 2022, a Pew poll came out that showed that 5% of young adults 18 to 29 identify as something other than their gender at birth, and that teens who identify as LGBT is over 200,000 and has doubled every year in the last few years. Culture is always downstream of the church. So the fact that our youth are struggling with their identity is a result of the lack of identity being taught and authentically lived out in the church. If our only understanding is that we're sinners saved by grace, then, we neg then we're negligent in the truth of our identity in Jesus. Remember, salvation is not the goal of our predestined purpose in God. Salvation is just the beginning. God created man in his image to be the brethren of Jesus. 
Romans 8, 28 and 29 says this, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. We're created to be like Jesus. Our identity cannot be, I'm a sinner saved by grace. That is a true statement, but it's not our identity. Our identity is Jesus. The only way we save our youth and change the tide of the culture is to identify as and represent Jesus to the world. We must be Jesus to ourselves to overcome sin. We must be Jesus to our families to grow them in the faith. And we must be Jesus to the world to show the love of Jesus in the light of truth. That's true, I have some serious work to do. You have some serious work to do. We all have some serious work to do. So where do we start? As with all things, we start in the word of God. Truth is always the foundation. But what is truth? According to the Oxford Dictionary, because Webster's keeps changing definitions in real time, and we're still waiting for the definition of a woman. So the Oxford definition of truth is that which is in accordance with fact or, ident or reality. But what is reality? Is it tangible? Nature's laws are not tangible, but there can be tangible consequences if we break one, like gravity. Our tendency is to ask, what is truth? But really the question is, who is truth? See, we see truth as a fixed point and we judge everything based on its relationship to that fixed point. That's our perception of truth. According to God, his word is truth. And Jesus is the truth. So he, Jesus, is the fixed point in which all things must relate. That means that everything God says is truth. It's not true. We're not measuring to see if what he says is true. It is truth. The truth. So our role is to believe by faith the truth. To enter into truth by faith. Whatever God says is truth, and we were created and designed to walk and to enter into that truth. Sounds simple enough. Especially when we reflect on the truth that's being proclaimed in Romans 3.23, where it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Jeremiah 17.9, which says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? These true statements are simple for us to walk in. And it's simple for us to accept because they're reflected in our daily life. But truth is truth. And we're to walk in all truth, the whole counsel of God. This means that even when we don't recognize it in us, the truth is still truth. So God says, you're righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The Bible also says you're justified. Romans 3.24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption 
which is in Christ Jesus. And in Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible also says that you're sanctified. Hebrews 10.10 says, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is equally truth. If the first set of verses is truth, then the second set is also truth. Truth for us to walk in. Why are we so comfortable saying, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, but we're not comfortable saying, I'm righteous, or I'm sanctified? And it's not, I will be sanctified. It's that I'm sanctified right now, today at this moment. This is the truth. You see, substitutionary truth of God is easy for us to recognize and accept now as truth. I was a sinner and the enemy of God. I needed to be saved, but I could do nothing about my own situation. Jesus came in the flesh to be the sacrifice for sin, for my sin, and die in my place to satisfy the wrath of God on my behalf. He's my savior because he substituted himself for me. He became my sin. But that's an incomplete truth. Look again at 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He died for a purpose so that we would become righteous. So who's righteous? According to this, I am. You are. If you've put your faith in, in this truth, then we're all righteous. And it's now because this is truth spoken by God. The substitutionary truth is easy for us to walk in because it's the work of Jesus. But here's the crazy thing. The righteousness part is also easy for us to walk in because it's also a work of Jesus. And the work is finished. You're a completed work. Look at Romans 6, 1 to 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in his death, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also 
must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What does alive to God mean? We are now set apart as alive. Here's where the word holy comes in. We're holy now. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16 says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. How holy are we to be? As holy as God, just like Jesus this right now is our identification this is the newness of life the new man it's not the new man i will become this isn't when i die and go to heaven then i'll be it's the new man i am right now when i'm told to put on christ i'm told to do that now today and every day how holy is jesus he's perfectly holy if I put on Jesus, how holy am I? Perfectly holy. When I look in the mirror, how come I don't see perfect holiness? Because I'm not walking in faith. Just like we need faith for salvation, we need faith for holiness. How did you receive Christ? It's by faith. So how are you to walk in him? Also by faith. Jesus is the one working. We're to rest in him. Hebrews 6 tells us that we need to move on past the elementary teachings of the Christ and repentance from dead works, the sin that we died to, and to move on to better things concerning you and the things that accompany salvation. The author of Hebrews wants them to move on into the things of maturity. Miles J. Stanford puts it this way. He says, immaturity considers the Lord Jesus as a helper. Maturity knows him to be life itself. 2 Corinthians 13.5 Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Christ Jesus is in you? unless indeed you fail to meet the test. According to this, how do we fail the test? If there is no faith. 2 Peter 1, 3-10, explains it this way. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason, also applying all diligence, in your faith supply or add to it moral excellence, and in your moral excellence knowledge, 
and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. And then you get to this crazy promise. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. So let's look at this process of maturity. So we start with faith. Faith is the foundation of salvation in Christ. 2 Timothy 1.12 says, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know who I have believed and, am, and I am convinced that he's able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. This is your security and salvation. This is the foundation, your faith in Christ. Once the foundation of Christ is established, then it's our job to add to that foundation. We're the ones to build on this. In 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15, Paul says, According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. Each man is building. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. How do we build? How do we add virtue or moral excellence to our salvation? Do we stop doing some things? Do we white-knuckle our resistance to sin? What work do we do to accomplish this? None. The work is already done. Just like the substitutionary work of salvation is by faith alone, our identification, the identification work of virtue, separation of sin is a work of faith. So to our faith, we're to add moral excellence or virtue. It's a separation, turning from all that is not of God. 2 Corinthians six seventeen and 18 says, Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. 1 John 2, 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Recognizing that sin must be removed from one's life. This is sanctification. 
God reveals the sin that he wants to remove from us through trials and suffering. When we're faced with trials, God is revealing a need in our life. And we're to go to him and ask for, to appropriate what he has already given us. Again, we need to understand that the promises of God are sure and true. If he says he's given us something, then he has. It's there for us when we need it and ask for it. This is appropriation. James explains this in chapter 1, starting at verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Here James teaches that trials have a purpose. They expose our needs. Our faith is fragile and tiny. Jesus over and over says to his disciples, O ye of little faith, why? Because their faith was weak. How do we build that? How do you make muscles stronger? You tear them down and rebuild them. Look at the faith of Peter before the crucifixion, where he denies Jesus out of fear. He's broken down. But then we see Peter after his testing, after he, was fail after he failed and was rebuilt. Peter is standing strong in the face of persecution, prison, and even death. James teaches that testing makes us aware of our needs, the things that we're lacking. Then we ask God to give us what we need, and that builds our faith. God is the source of all we need. Scripture says God is wisdom. So when we need wisdom, we ask knowing that God is wisdom and we are in his will to ask for more wisdom. And in faith, we know that he'll give it to us. This is true with everything we need. <clears throat> God has given us every spiritual blessing he possesses. The only requirement is to ask God for it when we need it. To appropriate what is ours already. Our identification truth is a work of faith. The Bible says I'm holy and blameless before God. I have the righteousness of Jesus imputed or placed on me. When I accept this by faith, I reckon it so. So what does this look like? Stop confessing that you're a sinner and instead thank God for your justification and the new man that you are. We can still confess our sins. There will still be sin. And as we sin, we need to ask for forgiveness. But our mindset needs to move to our real identity as God says it is. Miles J. Stanford puts it like this. God is not trusted, not honored, in our continually asking him for help. In the face of my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. 
how can we beg for help? Our responsibility is to see in the word all that is ours in Christ and then thank and trust him for that which we need. William R. Newell says, Satan's greatest device is to drive earnest souls back to beseeching God for what God says has already been done. You are complete in Christ. Our prayer needs to be, thank you God for supplying all my needs and then live like you believe it. When I look at myself as God has declared me, it's only by faith that I can be that way. So as to the actual process of adding virtue, what is it like? In faith, when I'm presented with sin options, my response now needs to be, that's not who I am. See, in the physical world, when presented with options in life in areas that are not who I am, I don't have any trouble being tempted to get involved with that. You come to me with a problem with your car? Nope. <laughs> it's not who I am. You don't want me touching your car. It'll just make a mess of it. If you're building a house, that's not a temptation for me to get involved in. It's not who I am. So in the spiritual realm, when sin is presented to us, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, it no longer matches who you are when you identify with Christ. You've died to sin. James R. McConkie says, Because he, Jesus, died, death hath no more dominion over him. And because of our union with him, sin shall not have dominion over you. Even though it is present in you, our reckoning ourselves dead to sin in Jesus Christ does not make it a fact. It is already a fact through our union with him. Our reckoning it to be true only makes us begin to realize that fact and experience. Remember Romans 6.5 says, For we have been united with him in death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Newness of life. The new man. How do we become a new man? What is the process? What are the steps? None. There is no process. It is who you are in Christ, as declared by God. You just must believe it to be true by faith. We are united with him and like him now. So why are so many Christians stuck in immaturity, constantly re-repenting and stuck in a cycle of sin? It's because of a lack of faith. We're fine believing that Jesus died for our sin because we couldn't save ourselves, but now we think we can make the sanctification process work. If we spend more time in prayer, if we spend more time in his word, if we white-knuckle our resistance to sin, no. No, we can't, if we can't save ourselves, we can't sanctify ourselves either. The Romans 6-5 operating system is faith. Saved by faith. We're sanctified by faith. I'm not a sinner. I'm sanctified. So how do I respond to this truth? With thankfulness. In faith I say, thank you Lord for this truth. 
But this is only the first level of maturity. Because scripture says, to our virtue, add knowledge. Well, knowledge is the dedication of relationship, yielding all ownership and authority to God. Romans 12, 1 and 2, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your personal service of worship, your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So knowledge, the recognition that surrender to God means giving up all of my personal rights, following him as a bondservant, one who voluntarily chooses to follow and not make decisions from our own personal pride. Knowledge here is the Greek word gnosis, comes from gnosko. It means knowledge gleaned from firsthand or personal experience. So what knowledge are we adding to virtue? This personal experience, this is our relationship with Jesus. It's, it's coming into a relationship with somebody through personal experience. With salvation, we enter into a relationship with Jesus. We are positionally his bride, but we are functionally a baby. The relationship with Jesus must grow us into maturity to be the bride he says we are to him. So how does this work? As we walk in faith and exercise our faith, our faith grows. And as our faith grows, our knowledge of Jesus grows. And as our knowledge of Jesus and his word grows, our faith grows. And as our faith grows, our knowledge of Jesus grows. Faith comes by hearing and experiencing Jesus. Think of the relationship with a child and the parent. When the baby is born, it doesn't know its mother. I mean, familiar with, and there's a bond of love there, but the baby doesn't know the name of the mother, her favorite activities. <clears throat> a newborn doesn't even know what the mom looks like because the eyes are still developing. It's just a blur. But how does this relationship grow? The baby is provided for. When it cries, it's held or fed or changed. It is a response to a need. As the mom continues to meet the needs of the baby, the baby learns to trust, to have faith, that when there's a need, mom will respond. After faith is established, then relationship develops. There are games and songs and hugs and kisses. The child is coming to know the mom through these interactions and the knowledge of and faith in the mom grows. Then they turn to. Now the relationship must develop authority. The child must learn to yield to mom. Not because mom's physically larger, but choosing to yield to the one who loves and cares for the child. Because the child will not always be smaller than the mom. But the yielding of rights is voluntary. It's voluntarily yielding. That's the role of the child. Our relationship with Jesus must grow in the same way. And we must yield our rights to him for the same reason. <clears throat> Knowing Jesus 
and knowing what he wants for me causes me to concede to his desires for me. God has already given me everything he has. Ephesians chapter 1 says that he's given me every spiritual blessing in heaven he possesses in Christ. He's nothing left to give me. What do I have that rivals that? Nothing. So what am I really holding on to? I need to let go of my will. So when I see Jesus in this way, and I accept in faith all the things he's given me, how do I respond? When, when I understand the relationship and that his purpose for me is only good, how should I respond in that relationship? I surrender to him. Once I yield my rights, then I respond as a true bondservant or help me. I use my time and talents for his pleasure. So once that relationship is established, once I know who he is and what he wants for me, then it moves me into the next phase of spiritual growth. It says, add to your knowledge self-control, temperance, self-discipline, self-control, using your time, talent, and energy to do God's will. Paul gives a perfect example of this in Philippians 3, 7 to 16. Paul says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many are as perfect, have this attitude. And if anything in you, and if anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal it also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Here we see, Paul, we see Paul famously realizing that all that was what he was working for in the flesh was nothing. He desi his desire in the spirit is to pursue God at all cost. His new passion is dedicating himself to the work of God and only doing that which he's being called to do. Paul's greatest desire was that fellow Jews would come to Christ. He wanted more than anything to be the, the missionary to the Jews. But God said, no, no, that's not what I want for you. I want you to go to the Gentiles. Paul's self-discipline was to lay aside his greatest desire and to obediently go and bring the message, the gospel to the Gentiles. Here's the self-discipline of the mature life. P. 
Peter explains this in 1 Peter 4.11. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We must use discipline and discernment in our everyday lives to determine if what we are doing, how we are using our time and talent, is in accordance with the will of God. How do we know? Remember, James tells us if we lack wisdom, to ask God. Also remember that God wants to bring us to the end of ourselves, so our need is very apparent. So we will ask him to supply us with the resources that he's already given us. They're ours for the asking, but we must ask in faith and trust that God will give it to us. The challenge here is that we're giving up things that may be good things to what God is calling us to do. Here's what we must remember, that as we grow in maturity, our decisions are not between good and bad. We're deciding between good and better and ultimately deciding between what's better and what's best because God only wants our best. Self-discipline is choosing not to give God our good or even our better. And this is challenging because we get tired or distracted and we settle for giving God what is good. We think, well, at least it's not bad. We even justify giving God what's better by saying, well, it could be worse. God could be happy with this. No. God requires the very best every time because he's given us the grace to do the work. Remember, grace has two aspects. The one, unmerited favor. We all are familiar with the grace being unmerited favor. But grace also is the power to do the work that he's called us to. If God has given us all power to accomplish the work that he gave us as his workmanship for good works that he prepared for us specifically, is he going to be satisfied with pretty good? Remember the parable of the talents. Two of the three servants that were given talents did the work to double it. One servant was like, well, at least I didn't lose it. How did the master respond to that servant? He cast him into outer darkness. Why? Is God harsh? No, he's given us all the resources to get the work done. Remember, it's the master who gave the servants the talents. Right? It's like insider training. Trading. We, ha we already have everything for success, so success is inevitable. Someone there's a Nancy Pelosi joke, but I'll leave that to Jeff. Um, this topic came up recently as I shared with the staff at Camp Maranatha. When we stand before Jesus at the Bema seat and he's judging our work, this will be the issue. When he asks us, why didn't you do more? What is our response going to be? There is no response. He's already given us everything we need to be successful and the power and the stamina to accomplish it and even the words to say in the moment 
These have all been promised to us in his word. We only must walk in faith. We don't have time to continue on with this process, to go into patience, which is suffering built endurance, long suffering. The endurance that comes from patiently continuing to obediently respond correctly in every situation, regardless of the suffering that is associated with it. Or godliness, maturity, responding to all who offend us with Christ-like attitude, the practice of putting the needs of others before our own to the point of death. Not to mention moving into brotherly kindness, becoming alert to others who hurt in the same fashion, and ultimately love when you try and build Christ-likeness in others. I want to leave you with the promise of Second Peter 1, 8 through 10. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing for you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. What a powerful promise that you will never stumble. When we walk by faith, there is no stumbling. On the other hand, if our lack of faith is causing us to not represent Jesus to our families and our children, if they don't see the identity of Jesus in my life, then they'll end up questioning their identity. Here's a warning that I know Jeff will be getting to in his study of Luke eventually, but I want us to grasp the implications of what we've shared today. Luke 17, 1-10. He said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that would cause one of these little ones to stumble. See, culture is downstream of the church. It's our lack of identity in Christ causing our young ones to stumble. We need to be guarding against this. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive me, then forgive him. With forgiveness and the God of forgiveness, all things are possible. God can redeem the lost time. He can restore all things. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Here's the key to everything, faith. And the Lord said, if you had the faith like the mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. The key to the spiritual life of maturity is this. We need to know our place. We need to know who we are and what we are. It continues, which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come and sit down and eat. But will he not say to him, go prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterwards you may eat and drink. He doesn't thank the slave 
because he did the things which was commanded he do so you too when you do all the things which are commanded you say we are unworthy slaves we have done only that which we ought to have done the bondservant does the work the master rewards the obedience with maturity that's our call to walk in faith walk in faith to what he says in his word and the result will be maturity in him let me pray for us heavenly father god i'm so thankful for your gift god your gift of jesus the only thing that could take away the sins my sins sins of the world god i thank you for your promise that in him we are complete we are holy justified sanctified god please give me the faith give us the faith to walk in this truth to be the people you've designed us to be god you're molding and shaping us into the image of your son may we see that as our new identity may we walk in the truth that you are making us like jesus we would step out of asking for forgiveness for sins that you've already forgiven us for 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 work that you've already called us into god i thank you for your word i thank you for your truth i thank you this morning i pray for my brothers and sisters that you would just encourage us remind us god of these truths that you've that you've given God cause us to ask for your help in a time of need thank you God and praise you in the name of your son Jesus Amen